Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 209, and today's guest is Chris Weisopel, founder and CTO of Veracode. Many successful entrepreneurs disrupt industries with innovative ideas, but how many can say their disruption actually helped create and jumpstart a whole industry that is massive? Chris has been involved in the cybersecurity industry since the beginning as a member of the elite hacker think tank in the 90s called The Loft, which went on to testify before the United States Senate about cybersecurity and vulnerabilities of the internet. Well, 20 years later, the cybersecurity industry is only growing by the day with new threats popping up and new technologies being developed to help companies and consumers play defense. Veracode is one of the anchor companies in this industry, and Chris is one of its co-founders. Veracode is the largest global provider of application security testing solutions, serving more than 2,500 customers worldwide across a wide range of industries. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the story of The Loft, which has all the makings of a great Netflix show, as it reminds me of the series Halt and Catch Fire. At Stake's acquisition of The Loft in the early days of the cybersecurity industry, the full story of Veracode in terms of starting the company, scaling to an acquisition, and spinning back out as an independent company, advice for technical founders on starting a company, lessons learned on scaling, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It's our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes a company profile page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I love doing this podcast for a couple of reasons. One, I get to talk to legends in the tech industry, people that have built great companies or even up and comers that are going to build the next generation of companies. But uh, I was even doubly excited today because not only am I talking to a tech luminary, but I'm talking to, quote unquote, one of the rock stars of the computer hacking elite. And I know people- We hate that rock star term. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so people hate the rock stars term, which I get, and I can appreciate that. But when I saw the picture of the loft, like one of these pictures of the whole group together, not when you guys were doing your um, your test testifying before Congress, you guys look like a non- '90s grunge band. I'm like, this is like an album cover for uh, an, a, a band, alternative rock band. So I think it was appropriate. Yeah, so- I, I, I guess I guess I can take it if it if it was the style. <laughs> <laughs> so t- t- so what was the loft i mean it was such a amazing group of of talented hackers yeah i i, I think we you know we started off on just wanting to have a communal space you know uh, a place where we could all go and be with like-minded folks because there weren't you know in mainstream there 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 isn't many there certainly weren't many hackers back in the early 90s i think some of the first DEF CONs only had like 500 people at them as opposed to like 20,000 now. Mm-hmm. But um, it was just a place to find um, like-minded people that could share resources and talk through things and experiment together. And, you know, it just sort of took on a life of its own. You know, it just naturally evolved into what we 
we saw what our capabilities were and how we perhaps could be, you know, altruistic about those capabilities and, and educate um, people. And then, so you started building like all these cool things and this was kind of like, uh, like a side, right? Like you, you, you had a full-time job, but this was like on the side, but um, your nickname was Weld Pond. Like what, how did you come up with that nickname? Cause you all had these cool nicknames and, yeah, so you just have to put yourself back in the culture back then. Um, you know, anything that was happening sort of online that was in a gray area that wasn't something that, you know, was dictated by the government or the corporate world. Um, not that it was illegal, but it was something that you wanted to separate from your 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 sort of your day job, you know. Um, and so the, the online world back then, and it still is somewhat today, you want to separate your online, you know, postings and things a lot of times from, from your day job. And sometimes that doesn't work so well, mm -hmm. but um, you know, the culture back then was to use, was to use uh, handles or, or, or nicks and um, you know, on IRC later, but earlier on bulletin boards. And um, I, when I, when I went to go to my first bulletin board, that required a, uh, no, it, it said no real names. Um, I had to come up with something on the, on the spot. Like I didn't put a lot of thinking into it. Um, and it's probably a good thing because I wouldn't want to be like the master of the universe or death legion or some <laughs> of these ridiculous ones that, you right. know, you can sort of tell the age when someone picked their <laughs> handle. Right. Um, but uh, I ended up just pointing at a map and I just wanted to be something completely random. Um, and I pointed at a map and there was a place called Weld Pond. And I said, why, why not? <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, it looks, it sounds completely dumb, right? Like what, but, um, it stuck with me all these years. And so how did the whole thing come about as far as testifying in front of Congress? Cause I, I watched the video, which was super fun to watch. And, uh, you know, just to see Congress and you guys are in front and you guys, like the pictures from that are cool too. You're all dressed up and you have your briefcases. And then like, and you had, you spoke second, which I would, I would think that would be like very, uh, I'd be very nervous if it was me. Yeah. Well, it was a great, it was a great experience. Um, you know, how we got there was uh, we, we gained some notoriety um, because we were exposing problems. And we were talking about back then it was just mailing lists, but we would, we would, we would, we would publish information like, you know, Microsoft has these huge vulnerabilities and they're, they're shipping software with vulnerabilities. Like they're obviously not testing enough and here's the proof. And um, you know, that was, you know, that was basically a, a, a gray area, right? It was, you know, some people would say, hey, you're putting Microsoft's customers at risk. And we would say, actually, Microsoft put their customers at risk. We're just telling you about it. Like, we didn't write the code. You don't have a license agreement with us, right? You did a commercial transaction with them. They're putting you at risk. We're an independent third party. We're, we're being critics, right? So um, I think that, you know, that at the time, that was that was pretty novel and people didn't understand what to do with it. And um, thankfully we channeled it over time to becoming you know, educational and getting the industry to change so that they would um, you know, deal with independent researchers in a way that 
was would, would protect their customers um, ultimately. Um, and I, I think that the fact that we, you know, we're doing something novel, we did have uh, good intentions about it. We weren't, you know, trying to write worms and take down the internet. Um, got the attention of Congress. And when they wanted to, you know, figure out like how, how does computer security fit into the government world, the, which was the highest priority since this was the Committee of Governmental Affairs, which is basically how does the government manage itself, right? Um, and they, they, now that the government was connecting up to the internet, computer security got to become a big deal. So that was sort of the primary um, reason we were there. But, you know, you, the government can't really do anything or it, there's few things it can do itself, especially with technology. It needs to have a public-private partnership, right? Like they're consuming technology from these vendors. So really it wasn't just talking about the government. It was talking about the whole ecosystem, the industry and how computer security just had to change. So I, I look, you know, in hindsight, we were change agents basically, you know, yelling, there's a problem that has to change. And ultimately it turned out to create, to create a new industry. Right. And it ultimately turned out to being a job for me, <laughs> ultimately, which is helping people who are writing code, write it securely. So they're not putting their customers at risk. Yeah, I mean, such it was visionary at the time. I mean, cybersecurity is obviously massive right now. And there's so many vulnerabilities and great companies are helping figure out how to protect. But back then, not not so much. <laughs> No, no. Um, I mean, this even the very basic things that we were doing, Microsoft had no idea what we were doing. Like we were starting at like step one. They thought security was, you know, we have people input a password. Like, no, that's one security feature, but security is 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 much more than that. It's like thinking about the security of the house by the key in your front door and not thinking about windows or all the other things that could go wrong. Yeah. Well, for anyone listening, definitely check out the, on YouTube, there's, there's two things. There's a video of the testimonial from Congress in 1998. And then the, you guys did a, like, like a reunion, uh, you know, to, was it 20 years later? It was a 20 year yeah. reunion, yeah, 20 right? Year so reunion. that was, yeah. in, I guess in 2008, yeah. I mean, 2018. Right. I'm getting yeah. my decades mixed up. It's been I know. so long. All right. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Yeah. So um, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, but my dad got a job in um, Massachusetts in when I was uh, four years old. So I don't really remember Connecticut that much. I really grew up um, north of Boston um, and uh, in the suburbs. And my dad was an engineer. His the job he got was actually a GE aircraft engine. So he was a quality engineer, um, testing testing jet engines. So metal parts and all kinds of things. And um, you know, I, when I look back on it, part of uh, of me growing up was was understanding a little bit about engineering and engineering quality and manufacturing quality. Um, because that's that's what we would talk about, and um, I, I think that served me well. Because my my first my very first job out of college was making tools to do automated quality testing at Lotus. Um, so I, I even like when I was a developer, 
a lot of my development time was thinking about how do we write software to test other software. Um, and then, you know, over the years, I've built all kinds of different open source tools and little tools to do that. And then finally at Veracode, now, now we're just, we're getting to just 15 years ago, started a company that essentially tests software. But, you know, when I was younger, I was very into um, exploring things, technology. You know, I took apart the family phone and quickly got it together again before my mom came home. I was always interested in, you know, how does the garage door opener work and all, all those kind of um, tech technology things. And so um, when I was um, around eight years old was the first time like computers were in the store. And um, I can remember going my, my, when we went to the mall, I would go to Radio Shack and I would play on their TRS-80 computer. Um, and then later when I was a little older and I could ride my bike to the Radio Shack, I would actually like make friends, I made friends with the manager and I would be able to write my own programs, type them in, run them, store them on a cassette, take it home. Um, so I, I guess the guy thought like having, uh, you know, like a tween playing on the computer might be good for sales, right? Like, look, the whole family can like it. It's not just for you, dad. Um, but uh, so I was into, I was into computers from a very early age, much earlier than, you know, we could afford one. Um, we, I finally got my own computer when I was a freshman or a sophomore in college. What was it? It was an IBM PC. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was an old two floppy green screen. And then I kind of kept upgrading it, you know, over, over, over the years. Yeah. My first computer was a Texas Instruments TI 99.4A, which uh, I remember those. My neighbor had the TRS 80. So we would, you know, hang out on each other's computer, like write different programs. Or I, I can't say I was developing the program. I would buy the books with all the uh, code in it and then copy it into my text instrument and then put it on a cassette and yep. then, you know, basically like creating games, but I wasn't creating the code itself. I was copying it from a book, but yeah, the, the mid eighties was cool because it was like all these different, like our, my next door neighbor had an Apple II, So I'd go over there and play with the Apple II. Mm-hmm. I had another friend who had a Commodore 64, yep, 64 yep. go there, play with that one. Yep. Um, it was, it was interesting. There was a lot of different platforms to, to explore. It was fun, definitely. So then, uh, obviously, you went off to study the subject at at school. So at RPI, yeah, yeah. So I, um, I, I got really interested in computers in, in my high school. We didn't have a computer class. It was like um, our physics teacher um, thought, "Hey, this would be great. Get a couple of computers to do physics modeling on. There's some physics programs that we could you can learn about." acceleration and, you know, parabolic motion and things like that. Um, so I, I started playing around with those and, and just said like, Hey, this is, this is what I want to do. So I, when I, um, was applying to college, I was applying to schools that had uh, computer engineering programs. Um, I actually was really interested in hardware and tinkering with hardware. So I didn't want to just focus on, um, computer science and just be, um, you know, just, just basically do math. Um, I was really interested in the engineering aspect. So um, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, had a computer and systems engineering program, which kind of spanned between computer science 
and computer engineering. So like we built a micro a microcomputer, uh, we programmed it in assembler code, um, and then and of course higher level languages. So I, I got a good spectrum of understanding, um, you know, the, the full stack from networking, hardware, up, up, up to programming languages. And it's, it's served me pretty well. Well, and then you men- mentioned you worked at Lotus, which, you know, so many great people, you know, great company Lotus, obviously, and, and so many people have worked there. It's part of their, you know, their background history. Um, so this was before you were building automated testing tools. So this was before you could buy like off the shelf type of thing, like Segway had their Mercury Interactive, right? They, those were the automated testing suites. Exactly. This was this was before that. I should have just like left Lotus because you know Lotus was on the cutting edge and they had to solve this problem at scale. I should have just like left Lotus and started an automated testing company. But uh, instead, I I left Lotus after seven years and went to Radnet, which was really my first um, experience in the startup world. I was employee number five. Um, I had known the, the two two founders or three three founders from they had all worked at Lotus, um, and um, I just thought it was a great idea to build. You know, we were building basically an internet version of Lotus Notes. So, like, what would a what would a groupware product look like if it was you know internet internet facing as opposed to the the LAN oriented environment? And it is it is very different thinking about things that like. Anyone on the internet can connect to you. Maybe a company wants to set this up so that, you know, employees can sign up and do case management through it. Like it was, it was just sort of opening up a whole new world. And one of the things that made me think about was, uh, was the security of this thing. I'm like, now I'm writing code and it's, it's not on the land, it's on the internet. Um, and, uh, you know, have to, have to think about security differently. And that, so that was very formative to me. I was kind of doing my exploration in the BBS world and starting to go to hacker meetups and met, I had met the loft guys. And then commercially I was on the defensive side, right? I was, I was actually building software that I needed to protect. And so I, 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 it was a great learning experience because you really, I think you have to learn adversarial thinking and defensive thinking to be a good um, security uh, practitioner. Uh, and so that's that's why, uh, you know, when I talk to security people, it's like, have you ever done, you know, any pen testing? Have you used hacking tools? Uh, and I think that's an important part of being a well-rounded security person. So that's a perfect segue into how you got into cybersecurity and then ultimately started a company. So yeah, but before that, you so there was you were part of, um, so BBN right, mm-hmm. which is legendary in itself too, and then so so Loft was acquired by Atstake, which I remember Atstake was a like cybersecurity consulting firm back then, right? Yeah, so I um, at the time that actually at at the end of um, after Radnet, I decided I wanted to become I. I I, I want to do cybersecurity as my as my profession, mm-hmm. right? And um, so that's when I went to I went to BBN. I was only there for a couple of years, but it was essentially a job switch. Like I was going from a developer to an IT security administrator. And the way I got the job was, you know, I had a software background, and obviously they're trying to secure 
software that they were writing at, at BBN. There wasn't any traditional application security, you know, professional career at all. It was just, hey, we have to worry about the security of the software we're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and just some of the background I had at the loft. And there was a couple of guys who were from the loft who worked at BBN, um, helped me get, get a start there and um, did that for a while. But sort of in parallel, the loft started to become more commercial. We started to sell our own software. We sold this password cracker called Loft Crack. We had another piece of software called AntiSniff, which would detect if people were um, doing network monitoring on your network. And um, we were trying to become commercial. So here I am on my first IT security job and then sort of on the side, and this is how a lot of companies get started, right? Because you got to pay your mortgage. <laughs> um, you know, I had two kids and a mortgage at the time. Um, and so doing that on the side, um, ultimately thought there's something more valuable with what we're doing at the loft. Um, and this could turn into something big. And I think this is really game changing. So I actually left BBN and went full-time at the loft. And we were trying to, Mudge and I were working on, Mudge was one of my colleagues at the loft. And um, a couple of the other guys there had gone sort of full-time and we were trying to figure out how to turn the loft into a business. So we were figuring out, can we, can we bootstrap this thing? Can we do consulting? Can we build software? Um, how do we do that? And none of us had any business experience, right? You, you just wish that you had, you know, someone at the loft was an MBA, but that wasn't who we attracted, right? It was, it was hackers. So we were ultimately not successful, you know, putting together a solid business plan and figuring out how to attract funding. Um, and so even though I was sort of at the loft for about six months, um, we, we ultimately decided, let's, let's join up with that stake. Let's join up with this startup that was funded, um, was a consulting company. They were, they were in stealth mode when we joined them. So they had only been funded for about three or four months, um, still in stealth mode, trying to figure out their business model. Um, and they, they knew they needed an injection of some security secret sauce. Um, and that's why they, they went out looking for people that, you know, to, to join them. So to some degree, it was kind of a bulk hire when Loft went there because they didn't want any of the assets. They just wanted the reputation of the team and the, and the team itself. Um, so that, again, that was kind of a unique unique ex- experience, but that was really my second startup was, was joining at stake, you know, pre, you know, pre, pre-launch. And then the company was later acquired by Symantec. Yeah. So we were a pretty cool and unique company. And I, I'm sure part of it had, had to be that there were the seven hackers from the loft that were using their hacker names. Um, we actually were using our hacker names like on business cards um, <laughs> as part of at stake. Um, and, uh, it attracted a lot of interesting characters. There are a lot of people that were from the hacker scene that 
came came on board. There was a lot of people that were on the fringes of the hacker scene that came on board. We had people from the NSA come and join us because they thought this was the, the next cool place to be, would be at a startup company trying to solve security problems. And we did amazing things as a consulting company. Um, you know, we had Microsoft was one of our biggest clients and we, we taught Microsoft essentially how to secure their code. Unfortunately, um, you know, venture-backed consulting companies um, really, I don't think they thought through the business model quite right because it's really difficult to get the kind of returns venture capital um, wants um, as a pure consulting company. And um, ultimately, I don't think we really made much more money than the investors put in. Um, so, you know, even though it was a great, great place to work and hugely impactful on the in industry, I don't think the investors were happy. Um, but I'm, I'm very glad it existed and it, and it happened and it became part of semantic. But the thing that, you know, um, is the sort of silver lining on this is it allowed us to take some technology we were building at, 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 at stake um, and was we thought was very promising and ended, ending up commercializing it to create Veracode. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a, 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 a piece of software, we called it Smart Risk Analyzer at the time. And it was something that Christian Ryu, who was also from the loft, and one of my colleagues at At Stake and myself um, were, were working on at, at Stake. And we end up building a team of, of with five more people. And we thought that the consultants could use this and perhaps we could sell this as a commercial tool and pivot this consulting company to become a, uh, a software company. But I think we were a little too late uh, in the game with that idea. And it just wasn't quite enough, and the investors wanted to wanted to bail out. So we ended up part of Semantic. At Semantic, we had the same idea. We said, "Hey, let's commercialize this software. It analyzes other software for security vulnerabilities. Everyone's going to want this, right?" Semantic said, "No, no one wants it." <laughs> they, <laughs> they they shut down the project. They laid us off. And what we did was we said, "Hey, technology." is still there. We filed a patent that with there's a bunch of code, there's all these ideas in our head. Um, let's let's build a company. And so we got funding um, from a VC called Atlas Ventures at the time. Mm -hmm. Now and, which is now Accomplice. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got funding and we purchased the technology and the patent application out of uh, Symantec and did a spin out, did a management spin out and, and me and Christian were the founders. And we brought along, uh, I think four other people that were part of the team. Like after we got laid off, we said, all right guys, you know, don't take a permanent job, you know, do some consulting part-time work or something. And we're gonna, we're gonna start a company. If you guys can hang out, we're gonna figure out how to do this. Um, and luckily a lot of the team hung out. So we started the company in, February 2006. So actually, I think next week is our 15th anniversary um, as, as Veracode. So, uh, you know, you never know how things are going to come together, but I'm quite happy that uh, Symantec did buy at stake and it, it pushed us to start a whole 
separate company around this technology. So 15 years ago, so what, what was it, the landscape like then? Like, were, How are companies testing their code for security vulnerabilities or were they just not at all? Yeah, so we did it manually at, at, at stake. Uh, it was a consulting project. We would go in and do a code review. We would do manual penetration testing. We would do these manual design reviews on the whiteboard with their architects and their lead engineers. And it was a very manual process. And that stuff all exists today, and you can do all that stuff today, but it just doesn't scale. And um, it's it's all those things are really difficult to do at scale. So um, I think if that was the world, just a small subset of our software would be secure. Um, but around that time um, that at stake was doing this, people were starting to think about automating what we call now dynamic scanning, where you could scan a website, crawl it, and then attack it, like send inputs. People, some people call this you know, fuzzing. Send inputs into like all the different fields in the web application and see if you crash it or see if you get some you know, server 500 error comes back and you're like, oh, that's bad. What did I do? So um, you know, it was automated, but it was fairly crude back then. Um, and then a little bit later, just as the time that we were actually at Symantec, some companies launched doing static analysis on source code. So automating the code review process. So there's a company called Fortify and a company called Ounce Labs. The, the latter got acquired by IBM mm -hmm. and, the, uh, and Fortify got acquired by HP. So we weren't the very first to do static analysis. Um, but we saw that this was a good idea and Symantec was actually using one of the tools. Uh, actually, they were using one called Coverity. So there's another company called Coverity. So there's three, but it was very fledgling, right? It was only the biggest software companies and the biggest banks were doing this back in 2004 or mm -hmm. 2005. And um, we saw that there was going to be all kinds of scaling challenges to using tools in the SDLC or just using tools on premise with experts. And we thought that a different model would scale much better. And so we thought if we did this as a SaaS offering where you, know, you could automate this in the cloud, but also have you know, a services team um, around it, we call them security program managers because the concept of the customer success manager hadn't really existed yet or and you know the funny thing is SaaS as a term didn't even exist yet so i can say i was SaaS before asp you know, right yeah it was asp or on-demand software you know it was like it back in the salesforce and netsuite days right there, there was a very few um that were doing qualis was actually doing this qualis was one of the you know pioneers security companies that was doing this as a SaaS. And we said we could do this on code as as a as a service, so we could combine people and process and technology, and have that expertise at Vericode, as opposed to every single customer had to hire a little bit of this expertise. Um, so it allowed us to scale um, much much bigger, much faster. Um, 
than other companies could do. So when like one of our competitors was saying, hey, we're doing, you know, 20 applications at this bank, we're like, hey, we're doing 200 applications at this bank. (laughs) And then when they're saying we're doing 200 applications, we would say we're doing 2000. (laughs) So, you know, it just shows you on-premise versus SaaS Mm -hmm. just allows you to scale um, uh, so, 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 so much, so much faster. How'd you figure that part out? Like, as far as like hitting right, you know, market product market fit, scaling the company, like, how'd you figure all that out? Raising more institutional capital to, uh, you know, because eventually you got to the point where you had filed for an IPO in 2015 and then, you know, acquisitions happened and, you know, there's more of the story of that, but how did you scale the company? Yeah. So the, the product market fit was actually going on while we were still at, at stake. Um, because we, it was a tool that we would give to a consultant and then the consultant would go on the customer site and use the tool to, 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 to do their job. Right. Um, and um, so the consultant would give us feedback. So the consultant was actually like the AppSec expert that would be at the bank um, who would be using our technology. So um, we, 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 we sort of learned that product market fit because we, we, we had something that looked like our customers at our company. Right. Um, and so when we kind of hit the market going, you know, sort of half product market fit. I'm not going to say we had it all figured out because mm-hmm. then we had to figure out how does, how does SaaS play into all of this, right? right. Um, and how does that play in? But the, um, the decision to go with SaaS was actually something that the, the VCs really pushed, pushed. Um, the VCs were saying, you know, I have a bucket of money to invest in security companies and I have a bucket of money to put in SaaS companies. If you were to do both, you would shoot to the top of the list right away. Right. Because, you know, when I go in front of, when I go in front of my partners, I can say, Hey, these guys are both. Mm-hmm. And we said, and and we had been struggling with talking to to VCs for quite a while. So when we heard that, we said, all right, we'll be a SaaS company if it gets us funded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was really, um, you know, you know, sort of in hindsight, you know, the main reason, but, you know, it was, we, we worked through a lot of the reasons why it would be better. Like some of the problems with any kind of security analysis is false positives. And that just makes work for the person looking at the results. They have to say, oh, well, how do I fix this? They go to fix it and they say, hey, there's not, there's not a problem here. You just wasted my time. And what SaaS allowed us to do was augment the automation with humans behind the curtain. So humans could do what we called scrubbing and look at all the false positives and remove them. But the, the beauty of that was it wasn't just a one-time thing. It was actually a feedback loop into engineering where those things, if it was prevalent, they just wrote up a a bug report and then engineering would fix it. So the next time that came around, there was less false positives. And so we started, SAS allowed us to monitor and measure how well we were performing for the customer and then, you know, see where the, you know, sort of where the the big poles were and and bang those down first. And so it it allowed us to get, better speed-wise, accuracy-wise, much more efficiently because we weren't waiting for the customer to complain and then trying to debug 
um, remotely with the customer. Um, so that that's one of the real benefits of SaaS that really kind of hit us um, really quickly. Now, as I mentioned, uh, the company scaled and you did file for an IPO, but um, CA acquired the company in 2017, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, we were on a pretty decent um, journey of, of growing the company. And then when we got to about, you know, 10 years, um, you know, 10 years old, we got to that, you know, sort of magic hundred million dollars in revenue where you start to make a decision like, hey, we're big enough to be, you know, clearly a standalone profitable company, right? But of course, you know, the, the VC backers, the investors want, want their money, right? They don't want you to just be a standalone profitable company for the next 10, 20 years. They want a liquidity event. So we just basically at that point started going down all the different paths you can go to for a liquidity event, which is private equity, a strategic uh, acquirer or IPO. So we started warming up and going through all of those potential options because it takes time, right? And the market can change quickly, right? It, it, it kind of takes six months to a year to, to, get to, that, to get to that point doing it well. And so that's why we're planning for all those scenarios. And it, it turned out that um, the, the best value versus risk scenario was with CA because of the strategic fit. Um, you know, if you get a strategic fit, they're just not looking at you as a as a piggy bank, right? As a as a money printing machine, which is how PE and the market looks at you, right? Um, a strategic fit. Hopefully, you have more overall value for CA as a company than they're than they're paying, right? And so we had a great strategic fit at CA because they were going down the path of really building a DevOps, um, you know, um, tool chain and, and, and all the pieces of the puzzle so an enterprise could do a good job of planning and building and, you know, shipping quality software. And they had done some acquisitions around Rally and um, I forget what the testing company um, they bought. Um, but you know they were putting pieces together to build that, and they in and, and security building security into that DevOps story and making a, de, a DevSecOps story was something where uh, we fit into their model pretty well. Um, but you all you, you know now because it's past history that you know I think around 18 months in Broadcom came and 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 bought CA, which totally you know blew up. CA, right? Um, parts have spun off, parts have been shut down. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and so during that process of like, what's going to happen to our business unit after Broadcom buys the company, um, talking with Broadcom management, um, it seemed like the best course of action was to sell the asset. Because at the time, you know, there was still a lot of investment that still had, had to happen. Um, and you know, Broadcom wants to turn things into, you know, making revenue. That's that's part of their model pretty quickly. Um, and so I, I think it just turned out that selling us at that point in time and getting the, the cash because um, uh, we could, you know, we could we had a, we had a pretty good valuation um, that that was more advantageous to them. And, you know, it's been certainly more advantageous to us because 
running this as an independent company um, gives us gives management a much more latitude to sort of do the right thing to build an independent company that will last. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, if, if I was just being a cheerleader for the Boston tech ecosystem, it was a better situation to spin it back up as an independent or separate, you know, entity that hopefully will have its own pillar of success story. So, um, which makes a lot of sense. Now, wh- where's the company today as far as number of employees or whatever details you can share? Yeah. So I can't share revenue because we're private, of course, but you know, we're around 750 employees. Um, we are, um, you know, more than half in the Boston area. We have um, an office in Singapore. We have engineering and, and, and sales and services there. Um, we have an, a sales and services office in London serving Europe. Um, so we definitely sell into, you know, I would say, you know, after North America, Europe is number two, South America is number three, and Asia is probably number four. Um, but, uh, you know, we've always had, you know, a, rem- a remote-ish ac- uh, aspect to the company, even in, you know, services. It's nice to have people in time zone. Um, and, uh, um, you know, due to COVID, you know, of course, we've been hiring remote since, uh, you know, since, since like March or April. So, um, I would say that we're still, you know, a Boston centric company, but we're much more diversified now. Now the, um, like what's like you guys publish a report state of the software security industry, I think is what it's called. So what, what like fast forward now, 15 years later from when we started and we, we talked about the security, then obviously there's a lot more attention on cybersecurity in all facets now. So, so where, where do you see things currently? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's one of the benefits of being a SaaS company, right? Is you can pr- create those reports. You can, you can actually see really well what's going on. Um, like we, 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 we have every single flaw that we have found and our customers have fixed. We have all that data. So we try to share it um, with the industry so that people can improve their process, like what things that our customers are working to make, you know, better, better outcomes, excuse me. Um, So sharing that with the industry is important. And it it helps us also see, you know, reality of where trends are going. Like if you say, is DevOps here? Well, we know how many people, how many times a day someone scans their code. So if they're scanning it multiple times a day, that's, that's probably a DevOps team. If they're scanning it once every month, that's probably not a DevOps team or something is very wrong. So not only do we get to see, you know, the mistakes people are making and give them advice around that, just overall trends like DevOps, usage of open source, different languages and things like that um, gives us good, good insight into that. So as, as far as where things are going, you know, most most of our customers want to move to a um, you know, the, the, the cloud native um, technology um, environment where they're deploying things using containers and Kubernetes and infrastructure as code. Um, that's the direction that pretty much everyone is going in and, 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 and building higher automation into the way that they're building code in their CICD pipeline. Um, everyone is just getting to that journey at, 
at different rates. You know, there are some, some companies that have just thrown down the gauntlet and said, you know, we're hiring a new CTO in four years, all of our applications are going to be in the cloud. And I know of companies that did that four years ago, and now they're all in the cloud. I also know companies that four years ago set up, you know, an advanced development center and had a separate little area place where they were experimenting with, you know, di digitization of a part of their business. And they've gotten to like digitizing 5% of their business in four years. Mm -hmm. So it's still important to that customer to understand cloud native and all the, those languages and things, but they still have a foot back in the mainframe and the monolith and the sort of the Java world. So, you know, I, I really like the, um, the William Gibson quote, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So the future is, is, is here now, you know, I mean, there, there are companies that are doing very advanced application um, development using state-of-the-art technologies for their, you know, business critical applications but it, it's still a maybe 20% of, of, our, of our customers um, are 100% there. So this is, a long, this is a long journey, I think, um, for a lot of these companies to, to transform um, and, 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 do, you know, and do it, hopefully do it securely with us as partners. Now the cybersecurity industry, um, obviously it's rapidly growing everywhere. But in Boston in particular, it's very robust, right? There's a mm -hmm. lot of great companies locally. Like, why do you think there's such a strong collection of uh, just a deep, rich cluster of cybersecurity companies? And like, what, what, are you, what are you excited about in terms of, you know, the Boston area as it relates to cybersecurity? Well, it's, it's obviously because this is where the loft is from. And we've started. <laughs> that, that, that's not a bad. It's got to be a factor. Yeah. It's got to be yeah. a factor, right? And I, I think at stake, um, was was a factor too. Um, at stake spawned a, a competitor called Garden, oh. which which sprung up um, within six months of at stake. And Garden actually pivoted to become one of the first MSSPs. Mm. So, for instance, um, uh, their their MSSP business got bought by um, I think by Verisign, and then it might have gotten sold to Symantec. I'm not quite sure where it was, mm -hmm. but it was one of the very first um, MSSPs. Um, and, but the, I think the other, the other big factor um, to Boston being a, a, a security um, sort of powerhouse is um, I think, you know, MIT has always been a place where, um, you know, cryptographers and forward thinking internet stuff and BBN with the internet stuff. Um, I, I think that's definitely a, a factor. So you, ha you have that sort of on the brain trust side. But the biggest factor I think is Boston has always been super strong in software. Um, they, were they were strong in hardware too, but you know, that all went to the West Coast sometime you know, by the 90s, right? Um, but Boston has always been very strong in, in software. And if you look at the kind of software that Boston is stronger on, it's more the enterprise software than the consumer software. It, there's very few consumer, consumer software companies in Boston. It's much more enterprise um, oriented, whereas the West Coast is where all those you know, 
social media companies are and all those mobile app companies are. Um, and so I, I think the enterprise software business is the security software business. Um, you know, if there's any consumer security software today, I don't know really where it is, or, you know, it's probably bundled free when you buy a computer. You know, 99% of security software is enterprise software. So I think it goes more with, you know, the East Coast's, you know, sort of like, you know, we're a little bit more serious about technology here. I think we're and the people aren't looking for that, you know, exit in four years as much as on 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 the west coast it's uh it's a this the 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 vc ecosystem here i think is a little bit longer term more enterprise um focused and i think security works works well um in in that environment yeah now uh you know so you're cto and founder of vericode obviously what what advice would you give to other you know technical founders on starting a company you know, one thing I would say is, you know, there's never there's never a good time to start a company. I, I know a lot of people, you know, it's something pushes them at some point to doing it. I think that's what happened with me when I found myself out of a job knowing this cool technology. Um, but, you know, starting a company is hard and there's never a good time. There's never a good time to do it. Um, if you have a great idea that you're passionate around, um, that's that. That's when that's when you start a company, especially if you have a, a a few people that you're pretty close with that are passionate around um, an, an idea. And I was also lucky um, to have that. Uh, the, the the the. But you know, getting more on the advice once it started is um, you know the culture of the company is 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 super important. Like what you get started with in your first year is going to set the tone for many, many, many years um, down, down the road. Like I can still see, um, you know, some of the original culture at Vericode that, you know, we had, you know, 15 years ago. And a lot of that actually comes out of the hacker culture. It comes out of the culture we had at At Stake. Um, you know, we took the good, the good parts of that um, and, 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 and brought, it, brought it to Vericode. Um, so I think, you know, aspects of a culture where it's like people should be free to, you know, communicate to anybody. There shouldn't be a shoot the messenger mentality. People should treat each other, you know, nicely and fairly and, you know, assume positive intent, um, and, 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 th and things like that. Um, and I, I think a lot of those things have, have, um, you know, kept us from, getting to be a, a, a siloed, you know, a siloed organization. You know, even when we were at um, uh, CA, um, our general manager would still get all the functional heads together twice a week to have, to have meetings. Um, and uh, that was like unheard of at, at CA. Like, they're like, you're getting your whole team together for two meetings a week. But it was just a place where you could just bring up issues like, what are you dealing with? Um, and people in other departments could say, hey, maybe I can help there, or we're dealing with that too. Um, and so, you know, open communication is a, is a huge part of it, town halls and things like that. But I, I think the, the thing, if I can get back to, you know, it's like treating people with respect, treating people nicely, 
understanding what burnout is, um, understanding work-life balance, especially during, during COVID, um, and understanding that, you know, building a company is a long haul, right? Like I thought I was going to do it for five years when I first started. (laughs) And I quickly learned that it really was a 10 year journey. Mm -hmm. Um, Most startups are a 10 year journey. Um, You can get lucky and have it be a five year, a five year journey. And sometimes that's a good thing. Um, it, It could be a good thing. But most companies get to a liquidity scale um, where they're really getting back the the true value of their effort. It's not just a you know an aqua hire or or a little tuck in that you're really getting the full valuation is after about ten years when you get to that hundred million dollar um, mark when you could do a strategic acquisition and be a business unit of a larger company or or or, or be a you know a standalone com- public company. Um, and, you know, obviously it's been 15 years now and we're still going at it. So this, you know, some, some companies, there's, there's, there's a lot of potential and a lot of growth. And I'm pretty excited that this, you know, this market is still, is still growing and changing and becoming more, more important than it was 10 years ago or five years ago. So looking back over 15 years, and I'm sure there's lots of examples here, but like, what, what do you, like, what would you give uh, as far as advice to founders on scaling a company? Like what the biggest lessons learned, kind of the things that you're like, wow, yeah, we, uh, you know, it was tough, tough to accomplish X. Well, I, you know, I think you got to balance like growing the careers of people inside the company um, and showing people that they have a path to go from individual contributor to manager to director, if that's the path they want to go on, or to to, to grow in 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 the engineering um, seniority uh, and responsibility, if that's what they want to do, and balancing that with bringing in people who have who have who have done it at the scale that you're you're aspiring to, um, and 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 have a good balance with those, because I, I think if things get out of whack, if you're just bringing in all new people um, all the time and not growing. You're missing out on on a lot of um, the the that that great knowledge and culture that you've built um, in, inside the company. But on the other hand, I think you need to bring in people who've been there and done that um, in, in different in different parts of the company. So it's really it's a really a, a balance um, a, ba- a balance of of of, uh, of those things. What are three apps that you can't live without? So um, I think Slack is now the, the newest app I, I, I can't live without. And it's funny because it's both personal and professional and all those quasi things, you know, in between, like I'm on the Black Hat review board. So the Black Hat review board has a Slack to chat, right? Um, you know, obviously, you know, the web browser, but I don't know if that one counts because it's, um, let me see. Um, I guess, uh you know, a security tool I love is, is Duo. So, um, you know, everyone wants to use, or I, I recommend everyone should use two-factor these days. So uh, having a, a two-factor mobile app that's just super simple to use and is always there, I think would probably be be my third one. Got it. Okay. Any good uh, podcast recommendations or books that you've read lately? Um. So I really like the Risky Business podcast. Um, it's it's it always seems 
so so the guy who runs it, Patrick, um, you know, he's he's been going to DEF CON, you know, for 20 years and he 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 knows all he knows all the, the main players and, and can always get the right security person on there. He's always like one separation away of 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 getting uh you know of, of knowing somebody well connected. So just the getting the right people onto the podcast is is I think half the battle. Um, and so whenever a topic is happening, like, you know, the Russians have hacked us again or, or something like that, you know, well, he'll have, you know, Dimitri from, you know, CrowdStrike on there. And, you know, so he'll, he'll, he'll have, or he'll have some guy, um, from Stanford, um, on, on there. So, uh, the, the, the quality is just really good. Great. How about outside of work? Obviously you're busy building the company, but outside of work, what do you like to do? Yeah, so I I like I like the outdoors. Um, usually low low intensity, so I'm usually I'm usually hiking. I'm not not climbing climbing tall mountains. Not that I I won't go up a mountain, but I like hiking outside, um, just enjoying nature. You know, a little bit of photography, a little bit of collecting, what I find out there. Um, but now that you know it's winter, uh, not as much outdoor activity during COVID. Um, I've been working on, um, uh, making music with, uh, my synthesizers. Um, I'm building a modular synthesizer. That's my, my latest project. Um, so that's, that's keeping me learning and, and, you know, doing something creative that's, you know, not with a computer. Uh, when I do music, I don't, I don't use the computer because then I'd be sitting in front of a computer again. So, uh, while I might use it to record, um, you know, whenever I'm doing something, it's with, it's with hardware. Um, and I, I find it's a nice, nice, nice break away from the computer. Very, very cool. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories. Um, and of course, you know, Veracode and you guys are hiring, right? So we're definitely hiring. Absolutely. Yeah. So go check out their job openings on VentureFizz. There's tons and tons of openings at Veracode that you can apply to. And, uh, I'm looking forward to the, Netflix version of The Loft. There's got to be some uh, good miniseries type of story there, or at least a, a, a nice movie out of it. Yeah, I think maybe someday there will be. Um, but if you want to, the best place to read um, some good stories documented about it is um, the book, The Cult of the Dead Cow. Um, and that's because two of the members of The Loft were in The Cult of the Dead Cow. And so this book is about the hacker group called the Dead Cow, which predates the loft. I think it was formed in the mid 80s. Um, but there's a huge amount of overlap between CDC, Cult of the Dead Cow and the loft. Um, and there's a couple of whole chapters about the loft and at stake um, that are in Cult of the Dead Cow. So I, I can recommend that to learn about, you know, hackers in the 90s. Cool. I'll have to check that out. Well, Chris, thanks again for your time. Appreciate all the stories. Thank you for having me, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.